0: The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association for Anatomy.
1: Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious. Today's episode, is this the anatomical butterfly effect?
0: I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, an associate professor in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hi, everybody. Recently, there's been some press about whether or not we should be taking the word cancer out of the diagnosis of papillary thyroid cancer, as it may be causing unnecessary stress and harm to patients. Today, we will be discussing what the thyroid gland is, where it is, and what can go wrong with it. We have a great interdisciplinary team to discuss this topic, Would everyone like to take a moment to introduce themselves?
2: Hi, my name is James Lee. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm an endocrine surgeon and thyroid is what I operate on the most.
3: Hello, my name is Georgina Stevens. I'm a medical practitioner who works primarily in education.
1: G'day there, my name is Chris and I'm an interested community member. Back in high school when I was doing history, we learnt about the Chernobyl disaster that occurred in the Ukraine back in the 1980s. And one of the things that came out was that a lot of the victims suffered issues from cancer, particularly with their thyroid. I had not heard about the thyroid and so don't actually know anything about it. So I was wondering if we could start with finding out what the thyroid gland actually is.
3: The thyroid is an organ situated in the front or anterior aspect of the neck. Its function is to produce hormones, which it secretes into the bloodstream from where they can reach the rest of the body. It's part of what we term the endocrine system which includes all the hormone-producing glands and tissues throughout the body. Other endocrine glands listeners may have heard of might be the adrenal and pituitary glands. To make these hormones, the thyroid uses iodine, which we obtain from our diet to produce the main thyroid hormones. These hormones then function to control the metabolic rate of cells throughout the body.
1: Can you please explain more about the anatomy of the thyroid gland?
0: Many of us have probably heard of the Adam's apple. That's the structure on the anterior front of our neck that can get sharper angle in men and less sharper in women. Just below that location on the neck is where the thyroid gland sits. The shape of the thyroid is similar to looking at a butterfly, so essentially the two lateral lobes are like the wings of the butterfly, and the central portion that connects the two lateral lobes is sort of like the body of the butterfly. As with almost every other podcast and every other part of the body, hashtag embryology matters here as well. The thyroid actually develops off of the tongue in the oral cavity between the anterior two-thirds of the tongue and the posterior one-third. You might actually have a depression at this location from where the thyroid breaks off and moves into the neck. A typical thyroid extends from a structure known as the thyroglossal duct. So the primordial, or developing thyroid, needs to get from the developing oral cavity into the lower neck. This thyroglossal duct, or tube-like opening, normally solidifies and then disintegrates by the time we are born. As with other structures that migrate, there may be remnants of this track from the tongue to the neck as the thyroid gland migrates. If things don't migrate normally or that thyroglossal duct doesn't disintegrate appropriately, we could end up with some pathologies that we'll discuss later. In regard to the microanatomy
3: of the thyroid, it's quite interesting because it's a bit different to other endocrine glands in the body. The substance of the thyroid is arranged into lots of little follicles. Think of these like tiny little sacs with the outside of the sac formed by a layer of cells, known as a simple epithelium, and a colloid or gel-like substance filling the sac. This enables the thyroid to store large quantities of the precursor to thyroid hormone, known as thyroglobulin, outside of the cells within the colloid, which is quite different to the other endocrine glands in the body. In between these follicles, we find the vessels and nerves supplying the thyroid. The vessels are particularly abundant so that the thyroid hormone can enter into the bloodstream when it's released. The specific cells that are involved in production of the main thyroid hormones and making up the sac of the follicles are known as follicular cells or sometimes thyrocytes. However, the thyroid also produces another type of hormone known as calcitonin. This isn't produced by the follicular cells but instead comes from another type of cell, which are known as parafollicular, or alongside the follicular cells, or just more simply, C-cells.
1: You mentioned that the hormones need to enter the bloodstream and the thyroid gland needs nutrients to grow, but what is the blood flow to and from the thyroid?
0: As we've been talking about, access to hormones and getting them into the bloodstream is critical for the purpose of the thyroid. So the thyroid gland is highly vascularized, or supplied by blood vessels. Because the wings of the butterfly or thyroid gland need to both be supplied, there is both a superior and an inferior thyroid set of arteries. These arteries connect with each other to form what is called an anastomosis. If you think of a roundabout where many roads come together to communicate, it's sort of like that. This ensures adequate blood supply to the thyroid
2: the thyroid gland is very highly vascular, meaning it has a lot of blood flowing through it, and this is relevant for surgery. Less than 150 years ago, the mortality rate, meaning people who die from thyroid surgery, between infection and bleeding was up to 40%. When we first started operating on the thyroid gland, bleeding to death was one of the most feared complications by surgeons. And that's why it was not performed very often. But we are very good at dealing with that now. Significant hemorrhage or bleeding during thyroid surgery is rare. In fact, one of the most commonly used surgical instruments known as the artery clip was initially invented to counteract the bleeding encountered during thyroid surgery.
0: So this tiny organ basically changed surgical practice.
2: Another relevant point is that in a particular disorder of the thyroid known as Graves' disease, when thyroid gland is hyperactive, the blood supply significantly and noticeably increases. And that increases the risk of hemorrhage during surgery. We give these patients Lugol's iodine to reduce its blood supply and therefore facilitate surgery after that.
3: What's happening in that situation is that the thyroid gland wants more blood for its increased activity, so it increases the size of its blood vessels. And that happens in multiple organs throughout the body if there's increased activity. Another good example is the uterus in pregnancy, where the uterine arteries drastically increase in size.
1: What controls the activity of the thyroid?
3: The thyroid actually works in conjunction with several other components of the endocrine system, namely the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. The hypothalamus is part of the brain and the pituitary gland is suspended just beneath it from a little stalk. These other glands detect levels of thyroid hormones in the blood and by the secretion of their own hormones signal to the thyroid to tell it how much thyroid hormone the body needs. This process of signaling between these three glands is known as the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. More specifically, the thyroid hormones we are referring to in this case are thyroxine and triiodothyronine, known respectively and more simply as T4 and T3. If the body doesn't have enough of these hormones, T4 and T3, this is sensed by the hypothalamus, which then produces thyrotropin releasing hormone, or more simply, TRH. TRH then acts on the adjacent pituitary gland and causes it to in turn release thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, which does as its name suggests and causes the thyroid to release more of the thyroid hormones. If the levels of T4 and T3 are sufficiently high within the bloodstream, there is a negative feedback on both the hypothalamus and pituitary glands, telling them not to further stimulate thyroid hormone release. This is an example of what is known in physiology as a negative feedback loop. This is also clinically relevant, as sometimes problems with thyroid hormone production might not be a problem primarily with the thyroid itself, but a problem with the hypothalamus or the pituitary gland.
2: That's right. In clinical practice, we routinely test for TSH, T4, and T3. So when the thyroid is hyperactive, T4 and T3 would increase. But ironically, TSH would decrease because of that negative feedback loop. So it is important to understand these concepts because I often have patients come to me and say, My thyroid can't be hyperactive because the TSH is low. Conversely, if the thyroid is underactive or hypoactive, the T4 and T3 levels would be low, whereas the TSH level would be high.
0: So what you see on blood tests are just a single number, but they're representing a complex series of events.
2: That's why you need experts to help you interpret those numbers.
0: The thyroid is essential for life and has impacts on the whole body, despite it being a relatively small organ. So it is sort of like a butterfly in more than one way, and in fact could be likened to the butterfly effect in the universe. One small change in the thyroid has big impacts through the whole body.
2: What are the implications for the body when the thyroid is removed? When the entire thyroid is removed, we replace the hormone that it normally produces with a synthetic form of the hormone known as thyroxin, and that acts exactly the same as T4 that is produced by the body. So as long as the dosage is correct, which we can check by the same blood tests, then there should be no deleterious effect to the body. The molecule is exactly the same, and side effects or adverse reactions to this medication is exceedingly rare.
1: What are some things
2: that can actually go wrong with the thyroid? There are two main ways in my mind that the thyroid can be diseased. One is through hypo or hypoactivity. And the other way is that it can grow lumps within itself. Any enlargement of the thyroid, whether it's a generalized enlargement or lumpy enlargement, we call that a goiter. These lumps can then be subdivided into those that are benign or non-cancerous or those that are malignant or cancerous.
3: In basic terms, we can consider the effects of an overactive or underactive thyroid as a speeding up or slowing down, respectively, of our body's metabolism, that is, how our cells burn energy. Thyroid hormones also impact the sympathetic nervous system that we've heard about in other podcasts by increasing some of the infrastructure of this system. Related to both thyroid hormones and the sympathetic nervous system, the symptoms of hypothyroidism can be quite dramatic. These effects include weight loss despite increased appetite, feeling hot, feeling palpitations, that is, feeling the fluttering of the heart, feeling hyperactive and irritable but also fatigued, and some gastrointestinal effects like diarrhoea. Hypothyroidism, in comparison, can be a little bit more difficult to diagnose because symptom onset can be quite insidious. Some of the symptoms experienced are weight gain, excessive tiredness, feeling cold, difficulty concentrating, hair loss and constipation. Many of these symptoms are actually found in other conditions like depression for example. So hypothyroidism is often said to mimic some of these conditions and can be especially difficult to diagnose and even more so in the elderly. Because thyroid problems are so common there's a very low threshold for testing thyroid hormones in people with symptoms such as these. In women, there may also be menstrual symptoms, with periods becoming less frequent and or lighter in cases of hyperthyroidism, and this is known as oligomenorrhea. In hypothyroidism, periods may become heavier, which is known as menorrhagia.
0: But there may be a lot of other clinical causes for these types of effects.
3: That's right, but we should always consider thyroid because it is so common.
2: For women considering pregnancy, it is very important that their thyroid function is within the normal range. Either hyper or hypothyroid can have negative effects on the fetus, especially during the first trimester when the fetus is still forming its organs, as we call it organogenesis, hyper or hypoactive thyroid of the mother would cause malformation of the fetus organs.
0: And so this means that the thyroid hormones can actually transit across the placental barrier.
2: Until week eight, the fetus does not produce its own thyroid hormones, it relies on its mother to provide thyroid hormone. And that is why it is so important that the mother's thyroid hormone levels is within the normal range.
1: We've just learned then about the the roles and the activity of the thyroid and the hormones, but... How do we identify issues with the thyroid?
3: So if someone comes to see their doctor with a particular symptom or sign that the doctor suspects might be related to a thyroid disorder, the doctor will firstly try and find out more about that particular symptom or sign. If it does sound like a thyroid problem, then the doctor might ask about other problems that are related to the thyroid and some of the symptoms that we've discussed, like changes in weight and appetite and mood. Then they'll move to examining the person. When examining someone with suspected thyroid disease, there are particular signs to look for. Part of this examination will include examining the thyroid itself to see if it is enlarged, the goiter that we've discussed feel its consistency whether there are any lumpy parts or any masses but then we'll also examine the body more generally because as we've discussed thyroid hormones have effect on the body as a whole part of this will involve checking the rate and the rhythm of the pulse the pulse may be elevated in hyperthyroidism and even have an abnormal rhythm whereas the pulse may be slow in hypothyroidism we might see changes in the skin with the skin being warm and moist in cases of hyperthyroidism and dry and cool and even coarse in hypothyroidism. There are many more signs that may be seen, but one of the other areas that is important particularly to examine are the eyes. In hyperthyroidism, the upper eyelid may be more retracted than normal due to stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system acting on the superior tarsal muscle. Sometimes in thyroid hormone disorders, most frequently but with a particular condition known as Graves' disease, there are problems with the soft tissues surrounding the eyes, known as thyroid-associated ophthalmopathy. This causes the eyes to protrude forward, known as proptosis or exophthalmos, swelling around the eye, known as periorbital edema, and conjunctival injection, or more simply red-looking eyes, as well as the upper lid being retracted. These problems with the eye may be quite obvious as soon as a doctor looks at the person and can often point to thyroid disorders before a history or blood tests are even performed. Related to the embryology that we discussed before, something else that we might ask patients to do is to poke their tongue out during an examination of the thyroid. If there is a lump in the neck that we think might be related to the thyroid, poking out the tongue will tell us that there might be a remnant of the thyroglossal duct present connecting the tongue down to the thyroid in the neck, and this can point to a diagnosis of a thyroglossal duct cyst.
2: There are many causes that can present as lumps in the thyroid, ranging from cysts, which is basically a collection of fluid or colloid, as we mentioned before, which is totally normal within the thyroid, except it's larger than it should be. It can be a solid growth, and that growth can sometimes be cancerous, but 95% of the time they are not cancerous. So it is our job as doctors to assess every single lump, to define whether this is likely to be a cancerous growth or not.
0: Some of these lumps may be due to that long, circuitous path the thyroid takes from the oral cavity into the neck, so that remnant or leftover piece connecting the thyroid to the tongue, known as the thyroglossal duct, could remain and persist into adulthood. In this case, it's a remnant of the thyroglossal duct known as a thyroglossal cyst.
2: Having taken a history from the patient, the next thing to do is to examine this lump that they have come with. So it is important to confirm that this lump is coming from the thyroid itself because other possible diagnoses, as just suggested, can be a thyroglossal cyst, it can also be a lymph node, or it can be other lumps that are within the skin and subcutaneous layers that just happen to be overlying the thyroid gland itself. There are also other signs we look for during examination that can increase our suspicion for malignancy or a cancerous lump. And there are other signs that would make us more relaxed about the nature of this lump. After a clinical examination, most thyroid lumps are then further investigated with an ultrasound scan. And if there is enough suspicion on clinical grounds and on the imaging, we would also proceed with a fine needle aspirate biopsy, which is a small sample taken from the thyroid lump with a needle that is exactly the same as the needle that's used to take blood.
0: And this would be in addition to the bloods we discussed earlier in the podcast.
2: Correct. In the event this lump
1: is seen as cancerous or otherwise harmful, what is the actual process for the surgery and what are the concerns that many patients have about the surgery?
2: I would just like to go back one step and talk about the potential indications for surgery when the thyroid is diseased. Cancer is obviously an indication, but there are other indications to remove the thyroid, including if the lump or multiple lumps within the thyroid is causing pressure symptoms, causing shortness of breath, or causing difficulty with swallowing, then they should be removed with surgery.
0: It is important to remember that the thyroid gland actually sits on your windpipe or your trachea. So any increased pressure from this gland or the surrounding structures could be affecting your airway. That's right. There's a lot of relevant anatomy when you're doing thyroid removal, right?
2: Absolutely. There are a couple of different structures that we always want to preserve. And in fact, when we remove the thyroid gland, we just want to remove the thyroid gland. We leave everything else behind, including the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve, the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and the four parathyroid glands.
0: The laryngeal nerves are actually not related to our thyroid at all. They're just going through that structure to access our voice box or laryngeal cartilages. So our ability to communicate and our success of communication is based on preservation of those nerves.
2: That's right. Those nerves do not actually enter the thyroid gland. They just come very close in their path into the voice box.
0: In the case of superior laryngeal nerve, if it's damaged or stretched, you might end up with a change in the pitch of your voice or the depth of your voice.
2: So that is often termed the singing nerve. There was a very famous soprano in the early 1900s by the name of Emelida Galigucci, who was touted as the world's most famous soprano in that time. She developed quite a large goiter, and she had the goiter for about 15 years because she knew that if she undergoes surgery for her goiter, she would be risking her voice. She eventually had to have surgery because she couldn't move enough air to sing anymore. And although the surgery was very successful and she was very happy with her voice after the surgery, when she returned onto the stage, her critiques weren't as happy with her voice because her voice had actually changed. This could be due to injury to one of these superior laryngeal nerves during her surgery.
0: The inferior laryngeal nerves control almost all of the other muscles related to our ability to communicate. So damage to these nerves might result in hoarseness.
2: Yes, damage to one nerve would result in hoarseness of the voice. However, the other vocal cord often is able to compensate. These days, all thyroid surgery is accompanied by what we call the intraoperative monitoring of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So if one nerve is injured during surgery, we often wait until that nerve recovers before we proceed with surgery on the other side. Fortunately, as long as the nerve is not completely cut, most of these injuries spontaneously resolve over weeks to months.
0: So some of this is due to stretching of the nerves and not necessarily severing or damaging permanently. Correct. An important component to all of this that we keep highlighting too is that your voice box is actually an airway passage as well. So any damage or effects on these nerves could also affect your ability to breathe.
2: Exactly. And that is exactly why we would not want to be in a situation where both nerves are damaged and then you will require a tracheostomy for breathing. What exactly is a tracheostomy?
3: Ostomy is a hole. So a tracheostomy is a hole within the trachea that is made surgically below where the vocal cords are, enabling someone to breathe if there's a problem with their vocal cords.
0: So the vocal cords are sort of like a set of doors in the hallway known as the trachea. So when they're closed, air won't go in, but when they're open, they will. In the case of damage to the inferior laryngeal nerves, you essentially lock the doors closed.
3: So in this analogy, the tracheostomy is a hole directly into the hallway, so we don't need to go through the doors.
0: We also mentioned it's important to preserve the parathyroid glands as well, and hashtag embryology matters here too. Parathyroid glands also migrate from what's termed the pharyngeal apparatus, or the part of our body during fetal development that forms most of the oral cavity. In fish, it actually helps form the gills. In this case, the parathyroid glands need to migrate from this oral cavity region into the neck. And so again, we might see a high variability of location of these parathyroid glands, which is an important consideration during surgery.
2: During surgery, we preserve all four parathyroid glands. However, as you mentioned, the location of these parathyroid glands can be quite variable. Sometimes they end up sitting within the capsule of the thyroid or even within the thyroid gland itself. Therefore, it is very easy to inadvertently remove these parathyroid glands thinking that it is part of the thyroid, given that these glands are no bigger than the size of a tic-tac. In that situation, when one or more of the parathyroid glands is inadvertently removed, there is a way for us to re-implant those glands back into our body. What exactly are the parathyroid glands then, and what do they do? There are four of them, two on each side, one near the top part of the thyroid and one near the bottom part of the thyroid. Their sole function is to produce parathyroid hormone, which regulates the calcium level within our bloodstream. The parathyroid hormones have a very short half-life, roughly five minutes. Therefore, if all the parathyroid glands are either removed or injured and they're not functioning, the calcium level in the blood would plummet to an abnormally low level, causing widespread problems with cellular function. And one of the earliest signs would be tingling around the mouth, tingling in the fingers, and as it progresses, the whole body would be in spasm, and that's known as tetany.
0: And that's because muscle contractions rely on calcium to occur.
2: If the calcium level in the blood is low after thyroid surgery, all we need to do is give the patient calcium supplements. It is easily treatable as long as it's diagnosed early. So although we have talked about many potential complications and they do sound very scary of thyroid surgery, I just want to stress that 99% of the time thyroid surgery goes very well and the patient usually only needs to be in hospital for one to two nights.
0: Thyroid abnormalities can mimic many other clinical conditions. Thus, a full physical exam, patient history, and some imaging may be needed or warranted in certain cases. If surgery is deemed necessary in a given patient, it seems that there are quite a few critically relevant anatomical relationships, which may have nothing to do with the thyroid innervation itself, but may impact nearby structures, such as our voice box or our breathing mechanism.
1: We've mentioned thyroid cancer a few times during this podcast, but is there only one type of cancer or are there different types?
3: If we think back to the types of cells that we discussed earlier in this episode that are present in the thyroid, those different types of cells can all get cancer, resulting in different types of cancers within the thyroid. From the follicular cells, we can get a few different types, and these are known as papillary carcinoma follicular carcinoma and anaplastic carcinoma. Of these, by far the most common is papillary carcinoma. Papillary and follicular carcinomas are both what we term well-differentiated types of cancers. This means that their cells are closer to normal thyroid cells than a poorly differentiated carcinoma. So these two cancers have better prognosis than anaplastic carcinoma a poorly differentiated type of carcinoma, which is quite an aggressive cancer and has a poorer prognosis. Recalling the parafollicular or C-cells, cancer in these cells is termed medullary thyroid carcinoma. There are some other types, but these are the most common.
1: Why do they want to change the name of the PTC, the papillary thyroid cancer?
2: Papillary thyroid cancer in itself represents a wide range of different behaviors, ranges from very indolent or slow-growing to relatively aggressive, where they present with spread to the lymph glands within the neck or even elsewhere in the body. Therefore, as we mentioned, even within papillary thyroid cancer, it is not just the one type of cancer. There are many subtypes within it. To remove the word cancer from it, I don't think we're ready to do that yet. However, Having said that, we are slowly gaining more information about this type of cancer and we have reclassified some of the subtypes into non-cancerous variants and we've also given the small cancers or the ones that are less than one centimeter a specific name, micropapillary carcinoma, signifying that these are very slow growing and can be treated less aggressively. Is
1: surgery the only treatment option for thyroid cancers? And if there are alternatives, what are the risks?
2: In general, surgery is still the mainstay of treatment for thyroid cancer. Surgery usually involves removal of all of the thyroid gland and sometimes involves the removal of the lymph glands within the neck as well. However, in rare cases where the cancer is small and singular, the patient can be observed rather than submitted to surgery. In the more aggressive types of cancer, other treatments after surgery may be required. And by that, I mean radioactive iodine ablation, which is a type of radiation therapy, but not the same as the external beam radiation therapy that we usually associate with treatment of other cancers.
0: And because the thyroid takes up iodine preferentially, this targets specifically killing the thyroid cells or the cancerous cells within the thyroid.
2: As Georgie mentioned before, the well-differentiated types of thyroid cancers are the cells that are still able to take up this iodine, which is now being made radioactive.
0: That's all we have time for today. I want to thank my interdisciplinary team for joining me today. Remember, relationships matter, at least the anatomical ones, and particularly when it relates to thyroid. Don't forget to head over to our website askanatomist.com for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag AnatQ.